Hello and welcome to Tales of the Resistance. In this podcast, we talk about the silent pandemic, the looming threat of antimicrobial resistance. I'm Beth, holding down the fort in social media management here at I Am Responsible, and I'm joined by, drumroll please, Mara. Hi, Mara. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Mara Zelt. And I am the project manager with the I Am Responsible Project here out of the University of Nebraska. And the brilliant Amber Patterson. Hi, Amber. Hi, Beth. It's great to be here. I'm Amber. I'm the graphic design person for the Schmidt Lab and work with the I Am Responsible team. Today, we will continue answering questions from the audience. We have two more Q&A episodes after this one, and then, no spoilers, you'll just have to come back and see. All right, without further ado, let's jump right in. So the first question that we have coming in is kind of a, a basic clarifying question about what is antimicrobial cross resistance? Once we start getting into these sort of definition, like very narrow definition questions, I really feel out of my element because I, I have in my head, I know what this is, but then I, I always second guess myself. So I will answer it as I understand it. And then I will be fully prepared to have a lot of people at me on social that I'm wrong. It's just part of it. So as I understand it, there's cross-resistance and there's co-resistance, and they're slightly different things, but they both uh, provide opportunities for a bacteria to be resistant to more than one thing, basically. So we've talked about how bacteria develop a resistance because they're exposed to an antibiotic. Well, cross-resistance basically means that whatever mechanism they developed to resist the effect of the antimicrobial is effectively effective uh, against multiple types of antimicrobial. So let's say it's a like a lysing antimicrobial or antibiotic that that means that it breaks the cell wall and explodes the cell. I mean, that sounds violent, but that's really kind of what it does. If the resistance that the bacteria developed that prevents that, maybe making their cell wall stronger or preventing unknown agents from entering it more or making it harder, works against multiple types of antibiotics, then they have effectively got cross resistance and not just to the one type of antibiotic that they originally developed the resistance for. And then I'll just add in co-resistance as a slightly different even though it wasn't in the question. And that is, so we talked some in previous podcasts about how bacteria can kind of exchange genes between themselves. Um, so once one type of bacteria have developed the ability to resist an antimicrobial, they can give that away to a bunch of other bacteria by giving their genes away. And co-resistance basically means that when they give that gene away for one specific type of antimicrobial resistance, they can, they're passing around multiple other resistances at the same time. And that starts to be a problem 
when you you have like large populations of bacteria because basically they start combining these resistances onto one what's called plasmid and then the, the plasmids what they share it's a smaller piece of dna and so they're like just creating this plasmid that's got a whole bunch of resistances on it and then tossing that around as like hey you're in trouble you're not really sure what's going on take this there's probably a solution to your problem on this uh, dna so that would be cross resistance is slightly different or um that's co-resistance slightly different than cross resistance but either in either way my understanding is that these are basically both ways to describe and multi-drug antimicrobial resistance and how that can occur. That's really interesting. I I had no idea about that. So I'm glad that question was asked because that's brand new information to me. So me too. I looked up a quick definition of what cross-resistance was, but co-resistance is kind of scary. I did not know that bacteria, like I knew they could pass their DNA along and become resistant, but I thought it was only like one antibiotic to know they can make, was it plasma? It's called a plasmid. It's a very, uh, so bacteria don't have chromosomes like we do. They keep all of their DNA in one big clump. <laughs> it's a coil, it's not really a clump, but they have these smaller pieces called plasmids that are not part of their sort of intrinsic DNA. They're not connected to the rest of their DNA, but they they use them for special occasions. And these are what they transfer um, between each other. And they tend to put on there a lot of these like like genes that they wouldn't use ordinarily, but are special occasion genes, so to speak. And they can be antimicrobial resistance genes, but they can also be like uh, resistances to other things. So if you are in an environment with a lot of heavy metals, you'll start seeing a lot of resistance to metal toxic um, effects on those plasmids. You may also see alternative energy sources so like the, the ability to use a different kind of food stuff. So those might get on those plasmids to sort of transfer between them in an emergency situation. And then the other thing to look out for is, is the genes that basically make that transfer easier, faster, or more likely to occur, or for some genes to integrate onto a plasmid. So all of bacteria can kind of use the plasmids but then you know to add some a new gene to a plasmid and pass it on to something else there's specific gene markers that do that as well and so when we're really concerned about amr passing between all these species it's not just is the resistance in the population it's are these other genes that are like indicators that they're passing their genes around really readily also in the populations but generally speaking, especially when they're in a really high, like an intense and, and stressful environment, they're putting a lot of genes on those plasmids and they are transferring them. And that's why you have a lot of problems with, and we're going back to co-resistance of, of things like metal toxicity resistance and antimicrobial resistance, because they start putting a lot of stuff and passing those genes around a lot when they're in stressed environments like toxic metal environments. 
Let's really quickly hit this question on um, are bacteriophages a viable strategy to combat AMR in the future? And so none of us are experts on this, but I want just like in my little understanding, I will kind of briefly address the topic and we'll try and find some resources and stuff to stick in the show notes. So bacteriophages are basically a virus that infects a bacterial cell. So there are pathogens to bacteria. And um, so bacteriophage as an alternative to antibiotics is basically an alternative way to kill a pathogenic bacteria. So in the sense that they are definitely a viable strategy to combat AMR in the future. I would say as part of a strategy, they're, they're not going to be the only thing that will be a part of the solution. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is a benefit and a curse, essentially, for the phages is that they're highly, highly targeted. Sometimes not even just a specific species, but a very sub-strain of the species that that virus will infect. And so that's really good because you're not going to have the same problem with antibiotics where you're microbiome crushing the whole thing. You can, you can get very selective, but there's a couple problems with that. First of all, you have to develop phages or identify phages um, that can be safely and rapidly delivered to humans for all imaginable pathogens. So this is going to be a huge research investment. That's one. But the other thing uh, coming back to, and we've discussed this in the context of antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, is the problem of diagnostics. So the ability to rapidly deploy a phage um, to treat someone's illness that is highly specific to a species of bacteria means that you have to very quickly be able to identify what species of bacteria is causing them to be sick, not just the symptoms of the sickness, but the actual species. And that currently takes in laboratory work usually several days. And you could just say to the person, well, here, we'll treat your symptoms for a few days. And sometimes that's fine. But if it was a, a very serious infection, a septic, um, necrotic wounds or something, that it can turn very deadly very quickly. You need to be able to have an, an earlier intervention possibly, or the technology to more rapidly diagnose the problem if you want to use phage therapy. The other thing I think I would want to say about phages is bacteria have the same, a lot of the same relationships with phages as they do with antibiotics in the sense that they're going to adapt to them. Anything that kills them makes them stronger. Phages are no different. The only difference is that phages have is first that they're highly specific, so they're not. You're not creating a lot of this evolution within all these other species to survive. Just just the one that's being attacked, but also that they are themselves living things. You know, they're viruses. So they need a host to replicate, but they they do DNA replication, so they are themselves evolving. So as the bacteria evolve resistance to the phage, the phage evolves resistance to the resistance, you know, it's like, it's a, an eternal war. And so it has some ability to sort of naturally evolve to some extent, which helps in the resistance war 
that's going on. But on that note of it's sort of evolving, it is a living thing. This makes people nervous. There are phage therapies available, but a lot of times people don't want to take them unless they are the sort of last resort. If this is, if it's between me and dying, all right, you can put, pump a bunch of self-mutating viruses in me to just try and kill the bacteria. And this is going back to some of our discussion in the book about how people feel about their bodies and, and the type of treatments that they're comfortable with and their understanding of science, you know, maybe there's no reason for them to be afraid, but they are. So we have a long way to go from using phages as like an intervention of last resort and developing um, treatments for all of the available species of pathogen and delivery methods and short-term interventions while diagnostics is, is happening and overcoming reluctance of the patients themselves before we can actually call this the solution to antimicrobial resistance. So I kind of think this is a part of the solution and that we should investigate this um, significantly and put some money into it. But there's a lot of, there's a lot standing in the way of this being really widely, widely used, I think. That was really well said and probably the clearest explanation of phages I've heard. It also just made me think again at how important communication is, science communication about educating the public about treatments that are possible to kind of combat that fear and fear of the unknown. Yeah. When I first heard about phages, like you had said, Mara, about patient, um, patient fears, because my first thought was virus being purposely put into someone, this could go so wrong. This is a disaster <laughs> in the making. This is Jurassic Park. This is really dumb. <laughs> like, but like Amber said, if a patient is educated on it, if we were more understanding of how it worked, then that initial, this is, this is science going over the deep end. Like, why are they doing this? If we were more educated and understood it a little bit better, then we wouldn't have those immediate negative, like, nope, don't do this. I don't want anything to do with this reaction. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I, I do think that there's some possibility for things like that. I mean, I'm not saying all of that to say that, no, we should, it's impossible. No one would ever take a phage as their sort of first line of defense. Because we talked about probiotics, I think, not too long ago. Probiotics, that's bacteria. So somebody is putting bacteria into themselves. Or when we talked about fecal transplants to address uh, C. diff, that again, there's a lot of ick factor there. And yet as it becomes, and I, not to say that that's, I don't know that that is like super widely done, but it is done. People do grow accustomed to these things. There's ick factor for sure, but people, people do want to live that's ultimately yeah. what it boils down to. Do <laughs> they do want to live? So I don't think it's impossible that phages become widely used. So that brings us to the end of our podcast. I hope you found some of the things we spoke about insightful. I know I sure did. Uh, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. See you next time. 